Good morning, everyone. Our sermon text, Exodus 21, if you want to be turning there with me. So from here to the end of chapter 23, we are, um, this section of Exodus is known as the Book of the Covenant. So we have um, just studied the Ten Commandments where God kind of lays down the, the Big Ten, right? The, the Big Ten Commandments of these big kind of principles that govern everything that we're to do. And here in the Book of the Covenant, God is laying out uh, specific rules that are a bit like case law, if you will. So just these very um, specific instances and applications of the Ten Commandments that we've already seen. And our text this morning, um, we don't get off to a slow start. It's a bit of a doozy. So let's just dive right in. Um, let's, if you would, please stand um, as we read God's Word together. Exodus 21, 1-11. Uh, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, and he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Let me, uh, let me pray for us as we study this text. Dear Lord, we uh, come to you having just heard your word. Um, just heard the, these commandments that you gave to the Israelites thousands of years ago that you, um, and that you, are, that you still speak through today. So we ask that that is what you would do this morning, that you would speak through these commandments to reveal yourself to us, that we would see through these your character, uh, your, your nature, and uh, that we would be able to reflect your character and your nature as well as we, as we study your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the word slave brings to mind some very specific things in our country. Right? The reality that um, between 1526 and 1867, 10.7 million men, women, and children were kidnapped from their homes and brought to this country to serve as slaves. That in 1860, just before slavery was abolished, almost 4 million slaves were living in the United States. Um, this is an aspect of our nation's history that we, we have to acknowledge and we have to we have to mourn, right? It's a it's a dark mark on our country, and that our that our nation tolerated abuses, um, horrible abuses against people who were made in God's image, 
And when we come to this text and we read the word slave and we read, hear them talking about buying a Hebrew slave, inevitably, that's going to shape how we come to this text. Um, and one of the ways that we, um, that in recent years, our nation's history has shaped how, how commentators and how people have come to the text is with really kind of one big question. Namely, why doesn't God speak more strongly against the institution of slavery altogether? Um, if, you, if you read commentaries on this text and rock authors, that is one of those big questions that's out there. It is, why, doesn't God, why does God allow any form of slavery to exist rather than condemning it outright? Maybe to put it another way, it would just be, can God be the good and just God that we know he is if his law doesn't explicitly condemn the practice of slavery? And I want to use that question this morning as kind of an on-ramp as we study this text, as we, as we see how it applies to us, right? To, to a society where, by God's grace, slavery no longer exists, legally at least. Um, and, um, yeah, but, but how, so using this question then as an on-ramp to apply this text to ourselves. Why does God allow um, slavery for his people? Or any, you know, any form of this. And, and as we do, I, I think and I hope that you'll see that as with most passages in the Bible, I think this one says less than we want it to say because it, it is speaking to people who lived thousands of years ago. But it also says more than we want it to say because at the end of the day, it still calls out the injustice and the sin in our own hearts. So as we seek to understand these laws, I want to give you kind of three um, frameworks or three things that we need to understand as we come to this text. Um, we're not going to be able to get into every little detail. There's a lot of little intricacies in here, but, but I, I hope um, with kind of these three ideas that then it just gives us the framework to understand what's going on in these laws. And this, So the three things that we need to understand is we need to understand the context of the laws. Right? We need to understand the purpose of the law, for the laws. We need to understand the narrative behind the laws. All right, so if you want an outline, there it is. Context, purpose, and narrative. One of my favorite books begins this way. It says, in Chicago, at the end of the 19th century, amid the smoke of industry and the clatter of trains, there lived two men, both handsome, both blue-eyed, and both unusually adept at their chosen skills. Each embodied an element of the great dynamic that characterized the rush of America toward the 20th century. And you read that, immediately you're, you're picturing two handsome, blue-eyed men who, who are going to do great things for society, right? Who are going to do great things to push the country into the next century. But how does your, your understanding of that paragraph change if I tell you that one of those men was a serial killer? Immediately, rather than seeing two men who are, who are pushing, who are doing great things for the world, you realize that one of those, for one of those, his handsomeness, his blue eyes are a facade, that the skill he is adept at is murder. Context there is, changes how you view it, right? When you understand the context there, you, you go from seeing two great citizens of our country to a serial killer and someone else. And when we turn to Exodus, 
the context that we need to understand is that this isn't slavery as we know it. Okay? We, we, we cannot condemn slavery as it existed um, in America too strongly. Right? Horrible atrocities were committed against people made in the image of God. But when we read these verses, um, these verses, we're not really talking about the same practice. Um, a lot of differences here. The big ones just being that this is not race-based slavery. This is not uh, masters being allowed to treat their slaves however they want to. Um, they have to treat them with dignity. That's the whole point of these commands is to establish ways that these slaves would be treated with dignity as people made in the image of God. All right, so the text starts with verse, in verse 2 says, when you buy a Hebrew slave. So this is one, one Hebrew being enslaved to another Hebrew. And the only situation in which an Israelite was enslaved to an, another Israelite under God's law was a form of indentured servitude. Um, so, so let's say, the way this works is let's say that I'm poor, I'm in debt, and we're struggling to make ends meet. One of the options available at this time would be to sell myself into slavery to find a rich man who could come um, and I would serve him, sell myself into his service. In exchange, he would pay whatever debt I owe. He would provide for me and my family with food, clothing, and shelter as long as I'm serving him. And so this was a way for someone who, um, for people who were struggling to get back on their feet. Uh, and then in Deuteronomy 15, which actually gives a very similar law to this one. Um, it sweetens the deal a little more for the slave. It says, um, so Deuteronomy 15, verses 12 and 14. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. So when this slave is finally set free, his master should, should send him out with abundant food and wine. The master here is setting his slave up to succeed. If, if, so if I'm poor and I sell myself into service to someone else, and then after six years, the law says he has to let me go free. So he does, but then I have nothing. I'm back on the same place where I was, trying to make ends meet, struggling. But instead, this master is meant to um, actually give the slave a chance to get on his feet. Now, I don't make, mean to make this slavery seem more glamorous than it was. Right? I am certain that masters in Israel worked their slaves hard. I am sure, I mean, part of the reason these verses exist is because they're clearly abuses of this, of this system. Where masters would take advantage of, of those um, serving them who are overbearing and harsh. But at its best, this, this system was meant to be a genuine blessing to both slave and master. Where... Um, where the, right, the master has someone to serve, to work in his home, and the, the slave gets to have his needs met and then walk away in a better position than when he, when he started. Because God's desire is for his people to be, um, I'm taking this phrase from, from Austin, heard him say this morning, a community of mercy. 
that God's people um, are meant to be generous and abundant towards one another. And, so, and that, is no le- no, that is just as true of relationships between a master and a servant as anything else. That masters are meant to be generous to those who serve. Ought to be a blessing. We don't have slavery anymore by God's grace, literally, right? By God's grace that is bond. But the, the quick application of this law is for any sort of service, um, anytime you find yourself in a position where someone is serving you, whether that's as a boss, an employer, um, are, you, are you treating others with kindness and generosity, or are you just using them for their labor? Are you helping them to succeed, helping them to move up in the world? You may not be a boss or an employer explicitly, but we all have people who serve us at times. All of us have hired a babysitter, had someone work in our homes, interacted with an employee at Walmart. For whatever amount of time they're in your service, are you being a blessing to them? Are you being a blessing to anyone who is that you are in a position to bless, right? Where you can, anytime that you have the opportunity to go one of two ways and either either use someone to, to extend your, your own agenda, your own um, your own blessing, or to be a blessing, which, which route are you choosing? And so when we understand the context, when we kind of root through the language of slavery, it almost gets to a point where it's, um, I want to be true to, there's a reason that the translators interpreted it the way that they did, but it almost becomes um, deceptive to even call it slavery because of this, this intent of generosity and blessing that's behind it. Uh, and the kernel kind of that we get to, under, all, under that language of slavery, is that masters should not use and abuse those who serve them, but rather to be a blessing. Right, so we want to understand the context. And then we want to understand um, the purpose for these laws. As we move into verse 7, we encounter a new scenario. So we're still dealing with a form of slavery, but now we're talking about a woman who is sold to someone with the purpose of marrying, either, either her master or the master's son. So again, um, this was something done mostly by those in poverty as a way of improving their, their situation in life. Right, a father who believes that it would be better for his daughter to be um, a servant wife to a rich man rather than, um, and probably the second or third wife of that rich man as well, um, rather than the lone wife of a poor man down the street. Now, we can condemn that all day long, right? We can see the problems with that, but um, where, we, where, the, where context helps us is to see um, I mean, what father doesn't want what they believe to be the best life for their child? Again, we can condemn it in all the ways. Um, my point here is just this, that there are things in these verses where understanding the context can help smooth over difficulties. But we're also allowed to balk at things that we read here. Um, we're, we're allowed to look at it and realize that there are things happening in these verses that scripture condemns. At the very least, we see polygamy. Uh, we see um, polygamy in verse 10, spoken of uh, and not condemned. It says, verse 10, he takes another wife to himself. Verse 8 makes it clear 
that this is a situation in which the master has sinned against the woman. It says that since he has broken faith for, with her. So it's okay if there are things in these verses that don't sit well with us. Because when we get to the New Testament, we see clearly that the Old Testament law was God's law to a sinful people. Matthew 19 is the, um, the big text on this. So Jesus is debating the Pharisees over divorce. Jesus says that divorce, unless a response to adultery, is sinful. And the Pharisees come back with, well, what about the law? If divorce is sinful, why was it allowed under the Old Testament law? They're referring to a passage in Deuteronomy that talks about a man giving his wife a certificate of divorce. Um, and they, they read that and they're saying, well, see, Moses says that we can divorce our wives as long as we give them the certificate of divorce. And Jesus' response is telling. He says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Now, there's a lot we can talk about with this. Um, when is a divorce lawful? Um, there's always complicated situations. Um, the importance of grace, even when divorce isn't biblical. But I want to focus your attention to the way that Jesus addresses this command about divorce. Because he doesn't dismiss it as unjust. He doesn't accept all of the circumstances around it as okay either. Instead, he addresses the heart. And shows that sometimes God gives us secondary laws that protect from the worst kinds of abuses. Um, so if, think about it like this. All right, God's law is like a fence. Right? God gives us this law. And inside the fence is um, obedience to God. It's all the good things that God wants us to have when we are within his will. Outside the fence is danger and evil. And God's law is meant to keep us from um, that danger. It's meant to keep us within his will where there's joy. All right, but God knows that we are sinful. And not only do, will we jump the fence, we already have. Right? Every one of us is sinful. We, we jump outside of the fence of God's law. And so in addition to the first fence, he builds a second one. Um, and this second, right, ideally we would hop back over the first fence into his will, but God knows that's not how we offer, operate. He's not naive about who we are and our sin. And he also knows that things get worse the further you get from events. And so he builds a second one um, to keep us from aggravating our sin, from committing the worst kinds of abuses. And so as we seek to apply this idea, this teaching from Matthew 19 to our text this morning from Exodus, the principle at work is that not every law seeks to present the ideal scenario. Some laws simply accept the world as broken and then seek to limit the damage that's done. And so in the context of this command, God knows that when we have opportunities to abuse positions of power, to take advantage of six systems in which we find ourselves on top, that we will. We'll do just that. We'll abuse the systems. We'll use the people under, uh, under us to, um, to advance our own, our own good. And so, so uh, verses 1 through 7 are there because God knows that a man who has that type of leverage and power over another man is liable to abuse it. So God gave these laws to protect those who are vulnerable. 
Or verse 10, God knows that a man with the power to break the one flesh union of marriage by taking multiple wives without consequence probably will. And so he gives this law to teach them that marrying another wife does not remove your obligation to care for your first wife. Right? So the first fence is have one wife. Right? Obey Genesis 1. Marriage is one man, one woman. Second fence is, okay, you jumped out of that, you married another wife. Don't sell her to a foreign country. Don't kick her to the curb or treat her as a second class. We need God's laws because we are sinful and we're prone to commit um, injustice and take advantage of others. So as you read God's laws, remember that the law is there to answer the greater question, how do I love God and love my neighbor? Right? Because as we, as we seek to follow God's laws in our relationships, whether it's with those who serve us explicitly or all relationships, we need to be wary of trying to follow God's law to the letter in an attempt to figure out how much we can get away with. Right? So that's the age-old question of asking ourselves, how far is too far? And here's the problem with that. Is what we see here, what we see from Matthew 19, is there is always wiggle room in God's law. Our hearts are deceptive and slippery. And there is always, um, there's always wiggle room. Paul talks in one of his letters about inventors of evil. Uh, and there is always some new way that you can rebel against God's law in a way that doesn't break any explicit commands from Scripture. And so the question that we must always ask ourselves when we are um, dealing, when we're interacting with other people is not what does God's law allow me to do here? But what, what does the, the standard of loving my neighbor and loving God um, require? Right? What, what does it look like to love God and love my neighbor? Am I, am I treating others as I would want to be treated? Am I placing the interests of others before my own? Because um, if we're just going by the letter, our sinful hearts will always find the loophole. That's why we have to understand the purpose of these demands. That uh, they are guardrails to fight against our sinful hearts show us how to love our neighbors in a, in a messy and broken, simple world. Thirdly, then, we want to understand the narrative behind the laws. This book of the covenant that we're looking at, chapters 21 through 23, uh, where, where God is giving the Israelites these more detailed laws, now it actually begins in the exact same place that the Ten Commandments begin, with slavery. All right, so the Ten Commandments begin, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. So the story of God's people is the movement from slavery to freedom. That the Lord came to them as slaves, delivered them out of slavery and bondage, and these laws are meant to reflect God's desire that his people no longer be in bondage. That they would throw off their shackles, not put on new ones, God's desire is that his people would be free. And the purpose of these laws is to ensure that none of God's people would live in lifelong slavery. That their lives would exhibit the same story, the same movement from bondage to freedom. All of this is true of believers today. Right? Our story as well is one of movement from bondage to freedom, from slavery 
to freedom. But we are born in bondage to sin. Christ then comes to us in our slavery and sets us free from the cruel mastery of our own, our own sinful hearts and the sin and the suffering that we experience because of the sin of others. Romans 6, 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Those who are trusting in Christ are no longer slaves. We've been set free. Right? But not to serve ourselves, not to, to live with impunity. Um, there's actually so one last part of our passage in Exodus that I want to focus in on, and it's this um, beautiful, fascinating little part of the law um, that we find in verse 5. It says, But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. So there's this condition in the law that a slave could choose to stay with his master. So if the, if the master provides well for the slave, is kind, not harsh or overbearing, the slave may decide that he's better off serving this master than trying to make it on his own. So one commentary that I read um, describes it this way. It said, rather than looking for freedom somewhere else, the servant had found it in his master's house. Rather than looking for freedom somewhere else, the servant had found it in his master's house. Sometimes freedom isn't found by being your own master. Sometimes freedom comes from having the right one. And when God comes to set us free from sin, he does not set us free to be our own masters. He sets us free in order to serve him. Romans 6 again says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Believer in Christ, you're a slave this morning. But the master that you have makes all of the difference. Um, because having God as your master, obeying his commands, is the only way you will ever be truly free. Because even more beautiful than that, the master that you have actually made himself a slave. Okay, Jesus, though he was found in the form of God became nothing, taking the form of a servant, um, being found in human form. Right? Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. Uh, that's the master that we have, is one who willingly serves us as well. Human authorities and masters, uh, they will betray us and hurt us. And the solution isn't to get power for ourselves and be our own master, because we'd still be enslaved to our own sin. We're still, we're, we're just as corrupt as um, those who we would, we would overthrow, but um, we, need, we, need, we need God as our master. This is our story, right? That we have been set free in order to be slaves to our perfectly kind and gentle master. Let's pray right now. Uh, Father, I uh, come to you now humbled by your word, uh, knowing that you are more generous and kind than we, than we know, that you, uh, you overlook 
our faults. You forgive us, but you are just and good as well, um, and that you do not allow sin to go unpunished. Um, Father, we thank you for for making us your servants and your children this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.